welcome to the August 2010 podcast of Ordinary Means. I'm your host, Sean Nolan, here with Matt Bowling. Hey, Sean. How are you? I'm good, Matt, and uh, I hope we both hope you're all well. Uh, we just got back from the uh, PCA General Assembly, had a great week there. Lots of uh, great worship services, lots of great music. It was in Nashville this year, which was the center uh, in many respects of Christian music. And so we got to hear from a number of different um, uh, groups uh, leading us in worship, including uh, Indelible Grace, some of you may be familiar with. Uh, Buddy Green led worship one night. Uh, who led worship on the first night? You remember, Matt? Um, the guy who does music at Parish Presbyterian Church um, in Franklin, which is an offshoot of Christ Community. Is that George and, Grant? Uh, George, George Grant would be the preacher, but the musician. Okay, uh, it's okay. Can't get it off the top of my head. <laughs> but good, uh, Greg Wilborn. There you go. I think it was Greg Wilborn. Okay, so so we got to hear a lot, and so we thought this month we would talk about music. I was going through some of the past podcasts, and I know we've mentioned music in the context of some other issues, but I don't think we have ever done a podcast on music, and so or specifically church music, and so we wanted to do one. We're going to call this uh, normally that's the ordinary means. This is going to be ordinary music. Uh, it's interesting, if you think about the ordinary means of grace, preaching, uh, the, the sacraments and prayer, there's a sense in which music, the congregation singing, incorporates uh, all of those elements. There's a sense in which the gospel is preached as we sing. There's a sense in which, well, there's a very real sense in which every time we sing, we're praying. And uh, as far as making the connection with the sacraments, the sacraments are, are symbols, they're signs of heavenly realities. What are we doing in song but uh, reciting poetry? We're, we're reiterating um, symbols. And so song really flows through uh, all that we do in worship, and this is why music is such a big part of our worship services. I remember reading a quote from Jonathan Edwards a little while back in which he said, uh, God has chosen music as a means of worshiping him because it is music that alone uh, reaches every aspect of a man. It reaches his mind uh, so that he might think clearly about God. It reaches his emotions so he might feel correctly about God. Um, and so really music is a vital part of our worship, even Jesus himself with his disciples uh, after the Twelve broke bread together, how did they close their time but by the singing of a hymn? Uh, so we wanted to go in that direction, and maybe the best way to start talking about music is to talk about some of uh, the possibilities. What's the gamut of music that you would find in uh, in evangelical churches? Maybe we want to limit that a little bit and say reformed evangelical churches. Uh, Matt, what do we got out there? Yeah, so I think we run the spectrum, basically. We run, um, if we were to, um, uh, if we were to go maybe um, just to give people a sense, um, and I'm not sure these categories are entirely uh, solid, but anyways, if we were go to, to go to the farthest right, uh, so the farthest conservative, uh, we would have something like um, 
the RPCNA, the Reformed Presbyterian Church North America, uh, and these brothers, some of whom are friends, um, would say that we should only sing uh, inspired psalms. And so they're uh, so they would sing psalms, and they would do it with no musical uh, instruments except a pitch pipe to set the tone. Um, and so that would be sort of the furthest conservative, if that's the right label. Um, and then the furthest to the left um, would probably be, um, in terms of Presbyterian and Reformed circles, um, sort of services that uh, would not have really any flow to them at all. Uh, it would be pretty much like uh, uh, what I would call a typical evangelical worship service where uh, you might have four or five songs up front and then the preacher would get up and maybe make an announcement or two and then um, preach a message, 30, 40 minutes, something like that. Uh, and then you might have one more song at the back end of the service and then, and then people would head out. Um, in terms of the style of music, you'd go from psalms set in basically hymn tunes, that would be all the way to the right, and to all the way to the left, those songs would be mostly new. Um, they would be, um, they would vary in form from uh, rarely something that would be a hymnic in structure um, to things that would be, um, you know, sort of repetitive choruses meditating on on one truth sung repeatedly. Um, so I think that that would, at least in my mind, it would cover the gamut. Does that sound right to you? Well, I, I think that would cover the gamut probably not just of Reformed churches, but even in uh, evangelical circles. Um, you, it's, it's interesting that wherever you are, just stop for a minute and think about where you are in church and what your, the music is like at your church, there will always be somebody to the left and somebody to the right. There will always be music that you look at and say, oh, that is that is like way too conservative for me. I don't do that. Um, because, for example, you mentioned uh, the psalm-only singers is farthest to the right. There are also those who would, uh, would, who would do chant. In, oh right! In a right. service, uh-huh. so yeah. which could be just completely freak some of you know some of our listeners out. Um, right. Whereas the you know that. the other way, when you're talking about the music, you're talking about uh, things you know full band uh, drums, whether or not you believe they're of the devil. Uh, you you've got uh, all sorts of things both directions. But wherever you are, and and I think this is a, an important point to make as we proceed through this conversation. Wherever you are, there's always somebody that you think is is more conservative you, than you, and there's always somebody that you think is more liberal than you. And the reason so we recognize that we we recognize that we ourselves are on a continuum exactly, by our judgment or our critique of the people to the left and to the right of ourselves. Exactly, but it also leads us to another point that we're going to make um, in in just a little bit, and I, I don't want to quite go there yet. Uh, maybe the the line to take to get there is if we talk a little bit about. Um, Tom Rainier. This is a, a book we've mentioned before on the podcast. This is one of those books, if uh, you're in ministry, uh, you need to read this book. It's a book by a fellow named Tom Rainier. It's called Surprising Insights from the Unchurched. And we'll, we'll put a link to the book on yeah, Amazon. We'll put a link. That, in fact, there's already, there's already a link up uh, somewhere on our website. Um, but essentially what this was, was this was a book where uh, Rainier did a, a huge amount of uh, research 
looking at conservative Bible-believing churches. So this would have been churches in the PCA, in the our, our denomination, in the um, uh, Southern Baptist Convention. Um, I think there were even some conservative Methodists in there. Uh, the number some of different. Gone. Was it okay? So as we're trying, they're trying to find some the the most conservative of the various denominations, but then ask the question um, of people who had just joined the church for the first time. They'd never belonged to a church before in their life. They just how joined. Become members in the last two years. Exactly. Why? What was what was it that drew you to this church? And the conclusion that Rainier draws from all of this research is that these new believers, these are not Christians church hopping. This is brand new believers. Conclusion he comes, you know, number one was solid preaching. Number two was solid doctrine. And then the list goes on down from there. I think cleanliness of bathrooms is something like 46. And um, which is surprisingly the feel, of the, the feel of the facility actually was fairly high, it, but it's but it's below yeah it's the definitely... pastor and the church's doctrine and things like that. But it it uh, it certainly did affirm that um, people you know care, the first people care that people the bathroom have is clean. Yeah, yeah, people do care what your facility is like. Is it easy to use? Things like that. But it was not primary. No, it was like tertiary or quaternary. You know, it was down the list. It was it was down the list. Now, what I'm trying to remember, and I, I think I'm correct in saying this, I think music was actually below the facilities. For yeah, for unchurched people, music was like eleventh. Yeah, it was very very far down the list, which is surprising to a lot of people because their impression is of believers moving between churches. And all of us have probably experienced that. Shoot, some of us might have done this, where, um, you know, either as an individual consumer of worship or as one who tries to lead those who are consumers of worship, that um, people go to and from our churches based on their own worship preferences. But that's basically just sheep, shuffle, sheep shuffling. Um, and that what. Um, what the research in Surprising Insights brings out is that among people who are not already sheep, music was not primary to them. We have to remember that no matter what the form of worship is in a church, whether it's an evangelical church that has no flow to it at all, or it's the most highly liturgical church you've been in, both of those are foreign animals for unbelievers. They're both foreign, and they're equally foreign. Now, the musical style might be a little bit more familiar, and you might make a case for that, to have a musical style that's at least... uh, understandable to people over exclusively old musical styles. Sean has the best phrase for this, that we sing the best from all ages. Um, but uh, but to unchurched people, all worship is foreign. Um, it's just a fact of life. And it's not the way in which they make decisions about which church to attend. It's only been since the church growth movement of, um, I'd say, coming out of uh, the 60s and 70s, where the musical stylings of what we would call popular music, rock, um, has become the music of the church. It's that that's a fairly recent phenomena where where the CDs that you buy and the music that you listen to when you're worshiping in church is of the same style. 
uh, you know, classically there was, well, classically often church music, I guess, I guess you could argue that classically church music was sung in the home as well as in the church. And so there was crossover there. Right. But it, but it was, um, it was from church to home, not from home to church. And uh, the flow was different. Yes. Yes. So, so what you're, I, I'm saying this because Matt, you made the point about, um, uh, drawing people in because the music is familiar, and yet what Rainier found was that familiarity of music was not an issue for unbelievers coming to faith for the first time. Um, the issue of familiarity of music or the music I like versus the music I don't like is the, is an issue for Christians, um, which I, which leads to, uh, you know, leads to the question you know how our church is growing uh this was a this has been a big issue in our denomination the PCA because uh last year we had the first decline now the reason we had our first year of decline uh is actually statistically shown because one of our mega churches did a cleaning up of its roles mm-hmm. uh so just one of the massive churches in the PCA uh cleaned up its roles and lo- lost several thousand members thus thus the decline um but again, this year, the PCA continues to increase in number of people. But the question has to be asked, where where are the people who are joining the church coming from? Are they coming from unbelief or are they coming from other denominations that are going liberal? Are they coming from... Um, you know what is it? What's what's what is it that's drawing them in? And that's that's typically, often, unfortunately. Go yeah, ahead. Go ahead. Well, I think that typically and unfortunately, the PCA has more drawn people. We saw this when Sean and I ministered together in San Diego oh so many years ago. Um, it it uh, it was very typical that the broad evangelical churches in our in that particular context in San Diego, it was the Calvary chapels uh, that were the open pathway to unbelievers um, and frequently people would get saved at a Calvary Chapel um, and then eventually um, the depth usually of the doctrinal teaching or somehow they got interested in Reformed theology or something like that would end up sending people to to us and we very rarely saw rank unbelievers come to Christ in our church but we very frequently saw a flow of people coming from less doctrinal churches basically they lived out um, what Rainer says in Surprising Insights is that people came to us because it was it was a church that was serious about preaching and doctrine. Yeah. Which is fascinating. Yeah. Now now by and large the, the PCA over the years has grown, particularly in the beginning, their growth was uh the liberal Presbyterian churches moving into the PCA. Mm-hmm. Uh, or I should say the, the the still conservative Presbyterian churches in things like the United Presbyterian or the Presbyterian Church USA um, coming over. And so that's why if you look, our growth is almost directly comparable to the decline in the PCUSA. Which means we're actually not winning that many unbelievers. Yes, uh, that's not to say we're not winning any, but we, we but are um, we are getting doing a lot of sheep shifting. Yes. Um, which yes. actually, you know, that just reminded me, we were talking about what's at the far left of worship. Um, and I just read this morning the PCUSA, uh, which is the uh, the mainline Presbyterian Church, which has been in, in terrible decline for the past ten years, um, really because of its um, 
disregarding of doctrine and preaching, uh, disregarding of the scripture. And uh, they are having their general assembly right now, and they're opening worship service. Did you hear about this, Matt? I didn't hear about this. No, no. Okay. Okay. no I'm, I'm intrigued. Now you make me go read it. Their opening worship service. Everybody in the congregation turned to face either north, east, west, or south. And as they prayed, people dressed up as animals, skunks and beavers and bears and things like that did an interpretive dance in the midst of them. Dr. Jones would be all over that. <laughs> Needless to um, say. So, so when we maybe when, that would be the far left. Actually, that that would be the difference between, as Dr. Jones puts it, this is Dr. Peter Jones, who's a good friend of mine, but and Sean's as well. Um, that would be the difference between moving from twoistic worship to oneistic worship. Hey, wait, we explain from where that. Two God and us to where there's just one. It's just us. <laughs> yeah. That's sad. Yeah, it was very sad. So really, in that sense, when you look at that, the rock band is terribly conservative. Yes. <laughs> compared, yeah. compared in some to strange sense. Um, yes. So, so, so what do we do? You know, what do we do with music? And, and I think maybe the, the place that we want to take this uh, for the last half of the podcast is, is to our own hearts, because that's why we bring up Rainier. You know, the, what is the issue with non-Christians moving around because of music. It seems to me that that is a, that's an issue of preference. That's an issue of... Christians. Christians moving around because oh, of music. Oh, did I, did I say that wrong? You said that wrong. Okay. Uh, Christians moving around because of music. It's an issue of preference. It's an issue of, dare I say, selfishness. Oh, it's a sense of that it's all about me. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. that worship should feel good to me, that it should fit into me. Now, you know, we're not saying, um, you know, if you're in just a horrible church that doesn't subscribe to any of the ordinary means, you've, you, you shouldn't leave. But at the same time, even John Calvin, I was reading John Calvin recently, and I think I brought this up in a recent podcast, that um, Calvin argues very vehemently that even if one of the ordinary means... One of the marks of the true church is missing from your church. You should still stick it out that that there might be you know that there might be a voice for um, doing what scripture calls us to be doing you know in, in yeah. Cal- calvin 's got his whole thing where he talks about what's what 's important what 's not so important, and what is um, uh, ideophora right and right. And he he says that the marks of the church can actually be overlooked for the sake of keeping the body together and for the sake of uh, keeping the church faithful. Well, and I think what what that goes to is that our appetites are set in the wrong places, in that we're we're used to everything basically kowtowing to us. We're used to I used a little bit earlier um, the idea of us being consumers. Um, you know, and that, that, that's the way that we generally unconsciously in American culture think about things is that I'm a consumer and I have all the rights instead of evaluating a church, um, based on, do I hear the gospel here? 
uh, am I assured in Christ here? Is my sin confronted and then comforted? Am I comforted despite the fact that I'm a sinner because of grace here? We're thinking instead about things which are um, quite a bit shallower um, because it, really that's a much more important issue um, than uh, whether the music perfectly suits me or not. Yeah, I think I think that word consumer really pulls out what it is, and this is this is a uh, an unfortunate side effect of the church growth movement is that you you had guys like Bill Hybels who said, "What I want to do is create." <clears throat> Excuse me, <clears throat> I want to create a worship service entirely geared toward the unbeliever. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go out. And I'm going to ask unbelievers um, what it would take to get them into church. And based on what they tell me, I'm going to create a church like that. Yeah, and it, you know, there's a good-heartedness and a bad-heartedness yeah. to that. There's a good-heartedness in that we want to reach out to unbelievers, but I think that there's a... Yeah, we can appreciate the evangelical zeal that's, that's We can appreciate the it. evangelical yes. zeal, but I think that, that um, you also can see that this would flow from a, a longer stream than that, even out of the Second Great Awakening, and particularly it's bad fruits in terms of a guy like Finney, in that we want um, we want the atmosphere to be just right so it's conducive emotionally uh, to people that they would feel induced to decide for Christ. And um, and I think that there's a, there's a healthy dose of that as well um, going on. Uh, I can remember uh, my wife and I uh, in, in an appalling setting, uh, what, one of the most appalling situations I've been in, in a church, where we went to a, a conservative uh, Bible teaching church. Uh, we actually enjoyed the service and enjoyed the teaching. Um, this was in a southwest city some years ago. Uh, and we had our firstborn with us, and he was just a little munch, and he was quiet and in a car seat. And it must have been two or three times that someone came to us in the midst of the service and said, there's a nursery downstairs for your child. And it wasn't, it wasn't posed to us as um, it's available for you. It was posed to us as this is what we expect you to do. You need to get that kid out of here. <laughs> because he might be a distraction to people. Hmm. Um. And, and and it was only in retrospect that I realized that it was, you know, he was a potential upset to their setting the right emotional setting. Hmm. Well, it's, so it, it certainly it, does bring you back to reality when you're when you're in a church where families are worshiping together and you've got kids who are occasionally making noises or a child who cries or it, it doesn't. It, it's like, well, it's like worshiping at home. <laughs> um. <laughs> Exactly right. Where you're attempting to make can remain in control of three squirrely boys while reading the Bible. Kids, kids, I just want to read this one chapter. Please let <laughs> just, me read you this one chapter, and then we'll sing and pray. And I promise we'll 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 read another the story. The pain will be that. over. <laughs> you are. I hope. You know. I, I do hope that our our audience is not listening to this. Going. I'm never going to listen to these guys again on family <laughs> no. worship. Anybody who has realistically tried family worship knows that this is the experience. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 
Very, very much so. So, so you know, I, Sean, I, don't, I, I think there's a difference too in the way that people perceive the use of music in a service. And, and maybe this is more profound than style. Um, well, it, I recently, it, it really is, and I and maybe just I know I know where you're going with this. Let me make yeah. one little quick point before you get okay, there. Go ahead. Yeah, is yeah. that style? Um, cannot be the the defining factor. One of the questions that I like to pose to people who who come to me and they say, "Well, you know what? Should shouldn't we be doing this kind of music, or shouldn't we not be doing that kind of music?" Uh, Bob Coughlin very very uh, wisely makes the point in his book on worship. Um, uh, it's called Worship Matters. He makes the point that. Our concerns about music are often tied to the fact that each of us individually thinks we know the kind of music that God likes. And that's that's like the equivalent something. of our, our Hebrew and Greek professors debating back and forth about whether the language of heaven will be Hebrew or Greek. Exactly. Exactly. Oftentimes people will say, no, 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 you have to do this style or you're not uh, or you're not being true to God, well, what I will often say back to them is, okay, I'd like you to take that style and I'd like to transplant you and put you in uh, in China right now, or in Africa right now, or in Russia right now. And I'd like you to, to attempt to tell them that if they don't sing like that, they're, um, you, they're sinning. Because... Style is a cultural thing. Absolutely. Now, that's I realize that you could. That's I'm opening a big uh, wormhole here that we could be sucked into. But you have to realize the same reason I'm not going to ask the congregation to sing uh, Russian music or African music or, or Chinese music that they're using in worship services and their styles or or Indian with a completely different tonal variation. Um, I'm not going to ask this congregation to do that. So therefore, we have to recognize that what we're doing is simply a an, an aspect of our culture. It's we're doing Western music, and you know our hymnody is is a Western hymnody. Mm -hmm. And while many of the words are excellent, if you were to move that into a different context, you might have to change the tune and the tone while keeping the text. Well, and and you might even have to, in some cases, you know, and the, and the, there are many people I think who are redoing hymns um, today, and I think that's one of the greatest. Uh, my sense is it's one of the greatest movements uh, among conservative Christians, certainly in America. And there's quite a few Reformed people that are doing it, where they'll take an old hymn and put it to an equally helpful tune, um, and they'll update some of the words. Uh, and it's it's wonderful because you've retained the theological richness, you've updated the language a bit, so it's not quite so archaic, um, and you've given it a tune that that feels a bit more fresh, it feels a bit more 21st century than 17th century, and that's okay. We're not in the 17th century, um, and we don't need to treat it as though it was a golden point to which all things must return. Yeah, um, because we you know it when the, we know as Sean said that it's a cultural moment. Uh, or a cultural couple of centuries, because we took it to Africa, and people would be like, this is lousy music. And we just need to realize we can be sort of proud and go, well, 
if you'd had our entire musical heritage, you'd think it's good music. And they'd go, yeah, and if you had our whole musical heritage, you'd think it's lousy music. You know, and we just need to get a little bit off our high horse in terms of music and how good we think our music is. Well, um, I think because, – go ahead. Go ahead. Well, you see well, I was going to say that, that, that those multiple cultures that are going to be heaven from every tribe, nation, people, and language, you're going to appreciate a lot more culture than you do now. And I'm convinced of that. See, I think we're very prejudiced right now. I, I think I think you're very right. I mean, I think this ties right into what we were saying about Rainier's book, um, and this ties into what um, uh, C.S. Lewis. There's a very very helpful uh, essay that he's written. It's in, I believe, it's in God in the Dock. Um, uh, it is in Christian Reflections. It's in Christian Reflections. Okay, um, he has a marvelous little essay on highbrow versus lowbrow music, and. His entire take, I can, I think I can sum this up in a couple sentences. Go find the article, go read it. It's the, it's one of the best things um, he, on music, on church music, simply because Lewis comes to it. He says, "I'm not a musician. <laughs> uh, you don't want to hear me sing." But here's the deal: some of you are sitting in church, and you hear that fancy schmancy highbrow Bach and Brahms with the organ playing. And and you go, oh, that is just so snooty and so highbrow, I can't believe you. And then he says, some of you, you sit in church, and you hear those those spiritual songs and those those folk, folksy hymns, and you say, oh, that is just so below me. Uh, where is the, you know, is, where is the rich uh, classical tradition? And what Lewis says is you're both wrong, because what you're both doing is you're both failing to be humble. You're both failing to realize that uh, there is a music that your brother likes. There is a music that your brother is able to worship to, that while you may not be able to, you need to humble yourself and worship with your brother, whether you're on the highbrow end or the lowbrow end. And it's it's a great little essay. It's not long. It's just uh, you know, I don't know, ten pages. Um, go and read that because that really puts music in its place. Um, I had a pastor, very conservative pastor in our presbytery, recently say to me, he goes, he says, I don't care what people are singing or what instruments they're playing. I just want to be to be worshiping Jesus. Mm. And and I I realize that that falls into that just give me Jesus camp, but. This is not that's not what he was saying. He was saying we spend too much time battling over these issues when we need to humble ourselves. In fact, we mm-hmm. just had um a fellow in our church who happens to be uh, a percussionist and he taught a marvelous Sunday school series in which he entitled How to Love Your Brother's Music. <laughs> That's a great title. And and that's really what we need to do because wherever you go to church there's going to be songs you like and songs you don't like. And the fact is that generationally, some of the older generations are going to like a style that's been that's a bit older. Some of the newer generations aren't going to like the older style. They're going to like the newer, but the older generations aren't going to like that. So what do you do? How do you keep us all together? Because I think that's one of the most important things. And that's why, as you mentioned, Matt, I talk about singing the best of all ages, is I want, a, I want to sing the gamut in of good texts, texts, good tunes, so that our older people can worship, our younger people can worship, and they can do it together. 
mm-hmm. and we can be respectful of that and uh, aware of that and um, and not put anybody off. See, one of the things you see in a lot of evangelical churches today, if you've got the big rock band, you're not always going to see a whole, you're going to be often be missing a whole generation of people. And if right. you've got just the 17th century hymns, you're going to see in that church, you're missing a whole generation of people. And and that's not to say that music is the only thing that brings people in, but we need to be sensitive to that. We need to be sensitive to the the whole person that we are ministering to. Well, and really, that's just to bring out that big word that we brought out a few times on the podcast before, is it's contextualized, is that we don't imagine ourselves to be in a different age. We think carefully about how to minister in this age and in this congregation. That there are some congregations, a church plant, there's a lot of things that a church plant can do, having started from scratch, that a church like mine or Sean's, which have been around for a lot of years, there's things that, that would be unwise, even uncharitable, unloving to do to completely deroute people from their history. Um, it's just not honoring a father and mother in a sense. Um, but on the other hand, to stick entirely uh, with you know completely old classical stuff is not to – uh, make any sense not to make any move to include folks who were younger, uh, folks out in the community whose the style of music from 17th century hymns just doesn't track with them at all. And they would appreciate that at least some attempt is being made for things to put uh, in musical terms that they can understand. Um, and so it's consideration all the way around. Which is very interesting because there are groups like uh, Indelible Grace, led by Kevin Twitt. Um, some of you may be familiar with that. I encourage you to, to Google Indelible Grace. They have a wonderful website where they have taken – all that they do is take classic hymn texts, um, not often the ones that you sing a lot. You know, they don't redo the tune for Amazing Grace. Uh, you don't mess with that tune. But other texts that you probably have never heard of but are marvelous hymn texts that are, in some ways are more like the Psalms, where they, they talk about um, our, who we are before God, the fact that we get angry, the fact that we don't understand what God is doing in our life, you know, things we don't need to be embarrassed of, things right. that the Psalms regularly sing about. Well, there are a lot of hymn texts that address those issues, but some of these texts are old. And, yeah. and there aren't singable tunes to them. Mm-hmm. And so a group like Indelible Grace brings them into – this is a – Indelible Grace ministers primarily to college age. And so they bring it into what I would, what I would call uh, a heavy acoustic, um, slightly grunge uh, styling. Sometimes Celtic. Sometimes, yes, sometimes Celtic. Um, but it's, it's what's popular among the college age right now. You could take many of their tunes and modify them for a mixed congregation, uh, but in uh, Reformed University Fellowship, uh, they this is they almost primarily nowadays sing what they call Indelible Grace or RUF hymns, which are these new tunes to these classic texts. And what they're finding is that these old texts really minister. To, to where these college kids are at. So it's not that 
you know, if you're, if you got young people, you got to do the, you know, the seven, 11, seven words sung 11 times, uh, singing or the, you know, or the little praise songs, but no, a lot of the up and coming generation, they want meaty texts, but they would, you know, again, we're, we're dealing with preferences here and there's this, such a fine line between preference and bring, drawing people into worship. Um, well, but some of the old texts were authentic, so the distance for a modern worshiper with an older song is not necessarily the topic of the song, but sometimes it is the music. Mm-hmm. And that's what Indelible Grace yeah. has tried to take away. Um, I can remember a previous um, era in ministry um, where Indelible Grace's redo of Whatever My God Ordains is Right incredibly ministered to me mm. because the way that they recast it uh, really grabbed a hold of my heart musically. And it fit the words very well. It's a con- it's a con- it's a contemplative song. It's a meditative song on the fact that God, when He sovereignly acts, is always right, even if it's painful and we're wrong to accuse Him of wrongdoing. And uh, He's right, whatever He ordains. And um, and it, it's just it's very very powerful to me in a way that the old hymn tune would not have been. So that's just a personal testimony. Well, let's. Um, we've got about five, six minutes left here. You, I know you wanted to talk about the role of music. Why? Yeah, why I do we sing w- in the first place? Yeah, I think we sing in the first place. Well, for people who are real sticklers about the regulative principle, certainly singing was there uh, in the in the uh, in Old Testament worship. We see it in the disciples, as Paul mentioned, or as uh, Sean mentioned. Um, for example, when they finish the uh, the uh, the Last Supper, what we call the Last Supper, the institution of the Lord's Supper, right? They go out singing uh, the Hallel's, right? Um, Psalm one eighteen, one nineteen, um, somewhere in there, and um, and so singing was obviously a feature in Israel. It is assumed that they're singing in New Covenant worship. There's no explicit mention that I can think of uh, in something that we might call a service in the New Testament of singing. Of course, we see it uh, in heaven. Um, and so it's a good and necessary inference that we ought to sing in services. But a real stickler on the regular principle, you know, could make a case uh, that we don't see it uh, commanded or exampled uh, even in uh, New Covenant worship. So it's an assumption at all that we should sing and have music. Well, you have the you have the instructions to speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, you know, that, that occur that, – that phrase occurs twice in That's the New true. Testament where yep. we, are, we are commanded right. to – that for singing to is use to be a music, part of our lives. To use lives. biblical music well. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, to encourage one another. You're right, and I had forgotten that, so I stand corrected. Um, so it, really where we get down to is what form should that take, right? Um, and, and also what its role is. Uh, so one of our, our Twin Lake Buds, um, Doug Kelly, um, has said that in worship services, we read the Bible, we preach the Bible, we sing the Bible, and we pray the Bible. And that the Bible pervades, the Bible and its doctrines pervade what we do. And in reform worship, I do think that it's right. One of the distinctions I think between, um, say, for example, if we were to take the typical praise chorus and the typical hymn, besides their style being different, their music being different, one is sung teaching and one is sung meditation. Both can be useful, but we should understand what we're doing. Um, some people have a hard time with praise choruses because they're not used to singing their meditations. And some people have a hard time with hymns because they're not used to singing their doctrine. 
Mm. Um, and so just that's just kind of a self-awareness thing about what's going on. Um, there may be places in the services where it makes sense to sing a meditation, perhaps about our sin or about the gospel. Um, but uh, isn't holy, holy, holy in some sense a meditation on the holiness of God? In different ways. Anyways, just a few things to think about. Well, that can be instructive would... to us. That can be instructive to us in our humility or in our, in our pursuit of humility because we can say, you know, why, we can ask ourselves, why am I struggling here? Well, it's because I, you know, this song, I'm not meditating, but wait, this is, this is doctrine. I need to be, you know, I need to be thinking and, and meditating on the truths here right now. Right. As, or, you know, maybe a simpler song, we say, well, where's the doctrine? We need to, you know, we could humble ourselves at that point and say, okay, no, no, I, this is this is a time for meditation as we think about our sins. So, yes, what I'm, I'm agreeing with you that that can go both ways and that can be instructive in our, as we pursue humility, as we pursue unity with our brothers. Absolutely. I think that the other... Um, and, and this just recently, I've recently had to formulate this kind of in a package because we're, we're thinking here of, of some changes musically. And I was trying to express it to a brother here, um, in recent weeks. And I can't remember where this is from, but at least two resources that would be useful to use. You think about the role of music in worship is Brian Chappell's Christ-Centered Worship. And then also the collection of essays, Worship by the Book, that's edited by Carson and has a contribution by, um, Oh, by Keller and by um, uh, the guy who used to be at College Church, Kent Hughes, and then an Anglican whose name I can't think of at the top of my head. Um, but we'll we'll link to both of those. So I don't know where this thought comes from. If somebody knows where this thought comes from, then you you uh, put it up on the blog, and I, I will give due credit. But here's the thought: a lot of our difference in the way that we think about music is because of. Um, what we think the role of music is in a service. In most evangelical services, the music and, – and I'm not trying to be uncharitable. I'm just trying to be descriptive. So don't get offended if this, is, if this describes you. In most evangelical services, the music is what carries the emotion of the service. So, for example, you'll typically have sort of a warm-up song and then there's sort of a rising tempo of music and of intensity to go up to a peak. And then typically the last song before the sermon will kind of bring you back down off the peak and sort of put you in a meditative mood to get you ready to hear the sermon. And then you hear the sermon and then there's kind of a song that sort of explosively sends you out, kind of a, a, a here you go, cheer you on as you head out. And in that sense, the music sets the emotion of the service. It, it, in a sense, carries the show. I think in Reformed worship, um, the gospel is what carries the emotion. It's us re-experiencing the gospel anew that sets the emotion in the service. And the music is the handmaiden of that. It doesn't carry the show. It doesn't draw attention to itself. It draws attention to the gospel and it draws attention to Jesus and to our sin and to our need of Jesus and to our response to Jesus. And so the, the way that we envision worship working in a service is really quite different. And I wonder sometimes if we just talk past each other um, because we're not thinking at this level about the role that music has um, in a service. So anyways, that was just something I wanted to share because it. 
it's been helpful to me, at least. Well, and I think, again, that reiterates a point we've been making from the very beginning of this podcast. And if I, I can put it so crassly, uh, when it comes to worship music, we need to get over ourselves. And and we need to focus on Christ. Mm. You know, and, and certainly if the music is not aiding us in doing that, well, then it's not serving its purpose in worship. Right. Um, but I think that's, I mean, I think that's a good place to, to end the podcast is we want, we want to come into worship. We want to come in prepared. And, and for that, we would urge you to listen to our podcast on preparing for worship. Uh, you want to come in as, uh, people who have been, uh, worshiping throughout the week that this is not suddenly, oh, wait, got to switch gears for, for an hour a week, but it's all week. I've had a song in my heart. All week I've had a text on my tongue. And All week I've been experiencing the gospel. Yeah. And so now I'm coming into worship, and now this is me and all the other people have been doing this. And let's let's come here and worship God together, and let's lift him up in song. And, and again, I go back to Jonathan Edwards. I think he's right, that music reaches the whole man in a way that just preaching— or just praying without music um, doesn't do it, and so that's mm. why God has uh, has given us music. We're made for music, or, or, may, or music is made for us. I, I think you could easily take Jesus' Sabbath illustration: man was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made for man, and switch that over to music. Man was not made for music, but music was made for man to to lead. I, I might have just switched those around. Just ignore me and follow what I'm going to say now. Um, but it's music is there to serve the worship, mm-hmm. and I think that's what your that's your point. Yeah, exactly. Is the, it doesn't stand on its own. It's not there for its own reason, which tells you when you have consumers and people change churches for music, it tells you that the church that they were in was not very thoughtful about it. That people should change churches when they don't get the gospel. Yeah. If the music doesn't help them get the gospel, then that's the problem. Yeah, you can learn. Have you ever had that experience of you buy a CD and uh, and you listen to the album, and the first time through the album, you're kind of like, eh, this is okay. But then you listen to it a couple more times, and you go, oh, this is growing on me. Hmm. Um, that that shows that we can, we can grow in our musical tastes. Uh, to use another analogy, first time mm-hmm. you ever tasted beer, it was the nastiest thing you ever put in your mouth. And yet, maybe maybe now you like beer. Same thing with wine mm-hmm. or, you know, any anything. They're, they're lima beans. You know, there may be this process of growing. So you can be in a church where maybe the music isn't, uh, you know, your favorite styling, but you can you can grow to learn and appreciate um, the styling. That's mm-hmm. that's not hard, and even grow to the point that that uh, you know, like the lima beans nourishing you, that that music is also helping you to worship. Uh, so it's really again, we need to get over ourselves. We need to um, we need to be willing to change more than um, seeking to change the music. I think that's fair. 
Yep, that's good. So we'll see. In the blogs, in the blog, you you guys could completely contradict us and find all the errors and everything we've just said. But hey, this has been a conversation on music. And uh, for Matt Bowling, I'm Sean Nolan, and you've been listening to the Ordinary Means podcast. May the Lord richly bless you as you sing His praises. Mm-hmm.